0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath joins us today to give her reaction and critique of Ford's Ontario economic update. Then we're going to talk about Doug Ford's re-election strategy with Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star. The military sexual assault cases are going to be moving to the civil court system. Defense Minister Anita Anad making that announcement. And uh, a new city council are going to be appointed in a week or so. John Best from the Bay Observer joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml the mini budget Uh, was released yesterday at Queen's Park with the finance minister Peter Bethlenfalvy. And uh, basic what these things are, they call it an economic statement, but it's it's really kind of a precursor uh, for the big budget, which is going to be coming up in the spring, probably around March, which is really going to be the election platform, right? Because we're going to the polls on June the 1st of next year for the next provincial election. So this matters, and it pretty much, I think, paints a picture as to where the government wants to go and where they want to spend their money. And uh, there's been a lot of concern about some of the announcements that the government made. And uh, joining us to talk about this is the uh, leader of the official opposition, and of course the NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Andrea, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. It's always my pleasure.
0: Well, uh, they're calling this one the highways and hospitals budget, uh, rightly or wrongly, because the focus here seems to be, uh, notwithstanding some of the opposition that we've heard from some of the communities, uh, they're bound to bet that they want to build two highways around the GTA uh, and we'll get into the hospital stuff and some of the healthcare spending as to whether or not that's to it. But let's let's talk about the highway situation first. Uh, we're talking about two major com- projects here. Uh, one, of course, is Highway 413. The other is what's been, no, I guess be pretty much dubbed as the Bradford Bypass, uh, which is up near the Holland Marsh area. Uh, your thoughts on these two projects, first of all?
1: Well, I mean, what I have to say is that I I'm okay with highways if they're uh, being Planned and put in place for safety reasons, uh, and for uh, you know, for um, ensuring that uh, they actually have a positive impact and the, and they're weighed against environmental negatives. But but we shouldn't be building highways uh, because. You know, because it's going to help Doug Ford's developer buddies, and that's exactly what's going on in this budget. You know, the budget is all about Doug Ford's buddies getting whatever they want, and you and I and all of our families and friends and communities and neighborhoods get nothing of what we need and deserve. Uh, The price of everything's going up, and it's just shocking how how out of touch this government is. So, So either Doug Ford's out of touch with what people need, or he just doesn't care, and he cares more about his buddies.
0: Well, and there's so much uh, pushback about these two projects, And, and we can divide them up. Highway 413, of course, is the one that's supposed to take pressure off Highway 401. Uh, and just about every community that's uh, going to be impacted by this, Andrea, as you know, their local councils have said, please don't do this. Uh, a number of environmental groups are very concerned about this because of the incursions into Greenbelt and protected environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, and yeah, they say that we need to do this, and it's going to save a half hour of commuting time. Now, I've seen a, a, another uh, assessment of the highway that says it might save about five minutes of commuter time, if that. Uh, so, you know, you choose your poison, I guess, which one you're going to do. But is it necessary? And and is it really you know where this government wants to go? And is it really what Ontario needs right now?
1: Well, and and, and let's face it, I don't know if you uh, have been um, um, kind of tuning into what's been happening with the Bradford Bypass, but yes, it was going to go through uh, the uh, deputy or the uh, the assistant minister of uh, transportation's dad's golf course. And then, and then, transportation minister uh, Mulrooney uh, was on a little golf cart a couple of months ago uh, at that very golf course. And now, the route of the high, of that uh, bypass has been shifted. Uh, to avoid the golf course, so there's a lot of dirty deeds going on here with this government. We all know it, but uh, but when it's so blatant, it's just disgraceful, and that's why that environmental assessment for the original, um, you know, uh, 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 formation of that road, or of that highway, that bypass rather, was done in like 1997. <laughs> it's like 35, it's like 25 years old. It's just insane. You don't do that kind of thing. This is like 1950s thinking. Uh, but but what what shocks me the most is that theirs? where Doug Ford's priorities are. While people are dealing with gas prices going through the roof, insurance, uh, car insurance going through the roof, the cost of food, the cost of housing, the housing crisis that we have here in Ontario, the, the health care workers that are leaving in droves because of the government's low-wage policies, uh, our education system that's, that's not meeting the needs of our kids, and, and this is what Doug Ford's priority is, It's shameful. The other thing that people need to know is that there's no extra money for these two uh, highways that they announced. These highways weren't in their their budget this year, the 2021-22 budget, Uh, and so that means they're taking uh, capital dollars that were were allocated to other projects uh, and moving them into these very wrongheaded priorities.
0: Yeah, and when they do this, of course, we know this from past governments, but certainly with this one, too, uh, when they start shifting money around from one project to another, we don't know, as we're speaking today, which projects they're not going to fund now. Exactly. Uh, we'll find that out down the road, excuse the bad <laughs> no pun <fun>. there. <laughs> but but you know, the thing that bothers me about this, I know I want to move on from the highways, but especially about the Bradford project here, uh, as you mentioned, the environmental assessment that they're, they're holding it up to is 1997. There was no Greenbelt in 1997. There was no environmental law to speak of in 1997. We were just getting our heads around around that uh, you know we used to look at areas like the hollow marsh and say that's just a marshy area now we understand the environmental sensitivity we understand that it's well a lot of people call it you know ontario's garden uh, that's where a lot of our fruits and vegetables are grown and it's going to have an impact on the water table there uh, yet they simply say well you know it's nothing in this environmental study says it's going to be impacted of course not because we didn't think of that stuff back then so yeah. it's, it's problematic and i, I i'm sure there's going to be some challenges about that But let me get back to the healthcare thing as we mentioned they're saying highways and hospitals let's talk about Healthcare health and their commitment to this and and you know i, I heard mr bethenfalvy on uh, the chml morning show a little while ago and and he's saying well we're putting money in to train more nurses the problem i've got when i talk to the people in this industry andrea is for everybody who walks in the front door and says hey i'm new to the bring me there's five of them walking out the back door that says right. i can't take this anymore You're, so I, I mean it's it's a it's not even a zero-sum game we're still losing here
1: yeah, I was actually. You're just so right on that, Bill. I, I'm, I'm talking to nurses and other healthcare professionals as well, and they just—they are—they are burnt out. They've worked so hard, and they're being disrespected by the government. Doug Ford's low wage policy is is pushing them out the door. Uh, and you and as and, and I'm even hearing that it's not. And so, of course, as people are walking out the back door, they're the most uh, skilled, right? They're the they're the ones with the uh, the most experience. And so we're we're losing uh, all of that uh, all of that great uh, you know skill set and and experience and and it's great if new nurses and and other healthcare workers are coming in in the front door but i'm hearing they walk in the front door stay for a week and then they're back out because they because what's happened it's it's spiraled into such a crisis now because this government did nothing all through covid19 to keep our healthcare workers uh supported that that you, that it's it's you can't keep you can't keep new people. They walk into the uh, into the workplace, and there's not enough staff. And so they're thinking like, I can't work like this. I can't work under these conditions. I don't have any colleagues. I'm taking care of far too many patients for what my what my skill set allows, and or what my license allows me to do in terms of having to be pulled in in all kinds of directions just to try to meet the needs of patients. So it's falling apart. And Doug Ford can throw money at a for profit long-term care system and a for-profit home care system, but every single penny uh, that goes into home care and long-term care uh, should be not only making sure that our loved ones are getting the care that they need, uh, but making sure that the workers who do that care, who provide that care, rather, uh, are having uh, are getting the the respect that they deserve and the decent wages and, and job conditions that they deserve. That's yeah, not happening that's, that's
0: now, though, Andrea. No. This is, no. you know, he can promise what he wants down the road. Uh, the biggest concern I'm hearing from people that work in in long-term care facilities and even in hospitals is most of the hours there are part-time. Uh, yep. it, they're hiring people on, you know, well, okay, we've hired 10 more nurses, but they're all part-time. So, in other words, that usually means they have no benefits. Yep. Uh, they have low wages because yep. part-time salaries are different than full-time, even though the law says that shouldn't be. And they don't get the hours. And this is yep. why so many of them have to go and start working two or three different jobs just to pay the bills.
1: No, you're, at, you're, 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 you're all of these things remain the same, and that's the problem. So, yes, you've hit the nail on the head. Then the, the problem is that Doug Ford likes to send out all these, uh, you know, cute little messages or all these, uh, you know, high numbers to pretend that he's actually doing something to to solve these kinds of problems, but he's not. And so when I say they deserve good jobs, that's what I mean. Full-time work, decent wages, benefits, pensions, uh, the kinds of things that we would expect, uh, you know, somebody who's doing that important work to be able to earn, but that's not happening. He's shoveling money into uh, into systems w- where our healthcare heroes have, have been toiling for so long, and have, are finally fed up uh, because they, they can't they can't make ends meet, and on top of it, they're stressed out uh, and uh, and are experiencing severe severe
0: burnout. Uh, there's another element to this that i wanted you to comment on here and and that's the relief for you know people in in the working in the hamilton london areas i mean where there's no relief here for taxpayers there were no tax cuts that were announced in this uh what they do here and this is an old conservative trick of course i mean the federal conservatives have done this for a long time and and apparently ford has picked up the ball here is they offer tax credits uh Mm -hmm. if you're if you're you know have enough money that you can afford to go away and spend a couple of nights in a hotel you might get part of that back as a tax rebate well but for the people that can't well too bad so sad uh, it, it, it's not touching the people who need it most it's touching the people who have more disposable income so they can do this sort of thing is that really the group you want to target here?
1: well I, I, again and, and that's I think what the big fail is in this in this, uh, in this uh, document it, it just it doesn't provide anything at all for people who who need help now it, it doesn't provide anything. For the problems that, that families are facing now, the rising cost of everything—you uh, know, the, the, the education system that needs a lot of attention—it just—it it just doesn't provide what people need now. It provides for Doug Ford's buddies. That's the focus, uh, but but not for what people need now
0: two other things i want to talk about here which i was waiting to hear something about yesterday from the finance minister and I heard nothing one of course is the continuation of, of the, the the vaccine policy and of course they have ford's already said the premier's already said that he's not going to make it mandatory for healthcare workers and i know that that uh, hospital associations and doctors are, are livid about that uh and it's not probably not going to do anything for the kids vaccine either it's well if you want to take it but but he's already sent a message hasn't he he says you know what by january you're probably not even going to need proof of vaccination so if you're an anti vaxxer just hold on there and you know you'll yeah. get your way. That's, that's the wrong message to be sending here.
1: Absolutely. It's absolutely irresponsible. But all the way along, uh, Deb Ford has has uh, kind of been on this fence. He's always been uh, giving more oxygen to the anti-vaxxers uh, and, uh, and being more concerned about them than the advice that he's getting from the science table and the Ontario Hospital Association and all of the health care experts in the public health communities. I mean, it's just... It's shocking that at this late stage in, the, in this uh, pandemic, that this premier still refuses to take the reins and become the leader that he should have been all along. This is about science. It's not about coddling your anti-vaxxer base, and we know he has that base, because we've seen a couple of his MPPs have to, have yeah. to be kicked out of the caucus, um, you know, because they refuse to uh, get vaccinated, and for other reasons as well. But it's shameful. That's, that's not... What we need here in Ontario, Uh, and what we need is is not only a premier that steps up and and makes the the hard decisions, uh, but that understands that science has to rule the day here. Uh, But we know that they're an anti-public health, anti-science group. Remember, they were cutting public health before the pandemic hit. They were literally, they were cutting home care, or health care, rather, I'm sorry, long-term care. They were cutting long-term care before the pandemic hit. They had cancelled the proactive proactive inspections in long-term care before the pandemic hit. And then they sat on their hands while 4,000 seniors lost their lives in horrifying ways. Family members were traumatized, uh, you know, because he didn't want to spend the money. He didn't want to spend the money. He didn't want to staff up long-term care over the summer between first and second waves. Other provinces did. We've had this conversation before. Uh, it's, It's disgraceful what's happened here
0: one other thing i want to touch on because i know our time is tight here but again something i was looking to hear yesterday especially because we seem to be getting signals previously that maybe there was going to be some movement here and that of course is the daycare program it was one of the major parts of the federal campaign as we all know we talked about it extensively uh even at that time uh the, the premier said and he didn't say much during the federal campaign he was pretty much out of the picture but he did say yeah i'm interested in 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 Talking to the feds about this, uh, even Mr. Bethlenfalvy, the finance minister, said, that, "You know, that we understand and we acknowledge this she session. In other words, the impact that this recession has had on women in the workforce, especially." With all of that in mind, Andrea, not one mention of daycare yesterday. I'm I'm shocked. Seven of the provinces yeah. have already s- jumped on side. What's Ontario waiting for?
1: Well, I mean, I, I we're going to have to figure out what Doug Ford uh, got up his sleeve on this. He doesn't want. Um, women back in the workplace. I mean, the guy's living in the 1950s. I just, uh, I just can't fathom why he doesn't understand that this she, sh- this she session will be fixed with a she-covery. And we get a she-covery uh, when women are back in the workforce. And that's uh, something that uh, he refuses to acknowledge. And, and meanwhile, families are paying the highest child care costs in the country here in Ontario. By the way, we have been doing that for, for a, a very long time now. With the Ford government, we've lost uh, childcare spaces. Thousands of lo- of childcare spaces have been lost under this uh, government. They pretend that somehow a tax credit for families uh, is gonna is gonna solve the childcare crisis. Well, I'm sorry, people. As we were talking about before with the staycation uh, tax credit, people don't have them. People don't have the money. People cannot afford childcare. And so, what happens? One of the family, one of the parents, one of the the mum or dad, or, or one of the partners stays home to take care of the kids because literally it's, it's more financially sound to, to stay home and not make earnings um, because all of those earnings or more would have to go out to child care. So it's a huge, huge issue. And it's shameful that this uh, this Premier uh, refuses to acknowledge that, you know, universal $10 a day child care uh, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, accessible to all families is what we need in Ontario, what we've needed for a very long time, what women and, 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 and men and, and, and partners that in, in families deserve, and our kids deserve it too. So uh, it's... Uh, it's shameful. There's just no excuse except uh, that they're, you know, they're. It's a, it's a dogmatic response, right? It, it's a, it's just not what they believe in terms of their, uh, in terms of their ideology, and that's that. That's going to hurt families. It's hurting families right now
0: i got 30 seconds left but I, I just from a logistical standpoint i wanted to hear a quick answer from you on this uh your job as the opposition of course is to talk about this and to debate this uh you're not going to have a whole lot of time i mean i'm looking at the calendar now we're already into uh, the first week of november it's the fifth of november uh only about three or four weeks from now uh you're going to break for the christmas break and probably not come back until march when uh mr bethenfall is going to present his full-fledged budget so i mean this is this is really uh, going to be done and then goodbye thank you so long and there'll be no accountability because there won't be any legislature for, about three months at least.
1: Yeah, you're right. In fact, next week, uh, because it's Remembrance Day week, we're in our constituencies, which is always a good thing to be able to touch base back home. Uh, and then we're back for just a couple of weeks bill just a couple yeah. of, i think i think december 12th is our last day yeah, uh, and right. then we come back well what we would normally do is come back uh... in the middle of february after family day uh... and then and then you're right we'll, we'll be there for a couple of months and then uh... Well, a couple of weeks really uh, and then the uh, the writ will drop in may and uh, early may and uh, election day is june 2nd next year so it's uh... it's coming fast um, and we're going to do everything we can to, uh, to continue to fight for families and what they need and, uh, and offer a government that actually understands what people go through. <laughs> you know, I come exactly. from a working-class town, right? I come from Hamilton. <laughs> I, I come from a working-class family. I get what families need. I didn't have a business handed to me. I had working-class roots and a strong immigrant work ethic handed to me, and I'm proud of that.
0: Opposition leader Andrea Horvath, uh, with what little time we have, uh, be interesting to see the debate on this. Thanks for the time, Andrea. Take care. Thank
1: you as always, Bill. Take care. Bye bye.
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Richard Brennan, of course, former journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queens Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years uh, for the Torstar Corporation, Co- Corporation, and uh, he joins us with his uh, weekly Friday visit to uh, give us a roundup of what's going on. Badger, great to have you with us again. Hope you had a great week.
2: Yeah, I did, Bill. You.
0: Good, good. Uh, interesting uh, meeting uh, with uh, the guys from the province the other day, Mr. Bethlenfalvy, of course, the finance minister, with uh, what they call an economic statement, which is really kind of a mini budget. Uh, give me a read on, on what you heard yesterday, and, and uh, from a strategic standpoint, uh, because now that they've doubled down on the two highway projects, the Highway 413 uh, and the, the Bradford Bypass, uh, it kind of looks like they figure their key to re-election, as they see it anyway, is going to be uh, that 416 area. That's where the votes are. That's where they need to win a lot of seats.
2: Well, I, I think that they, they've created themselves a mess here, and, and with that 413, the fact that they're pushing that through, and despite the despite the fact that all the municipalities along its route, uh, from basically milton to uh, through up to the uh, four hundred, uh, they have said, no, we don't want it. Mm-hmm. and And I think this could be an election issue itself, not the kind of elect- election issue they thought. They're really believing that, you know, people that who drive cars are going to embrace this and, 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 you know, damn the torpedoes. It doesn't matter if you're going through wetlands, you're going through agricultural lands, protected areas. Forget it, as long as I get there in a hurry. Well, I'm not quite so sure that everybody drives a car isn't in favor of protecting, protecting those, you know, the various things I just mentioned.
0: Well, I'm one of those guys. I mean, you know, I, you know, we, we spend a lot of time up north. We we love it up there, uh, as often as we can. So I'm one of those people that drives, uh, and I go through those areas. As a matter of fact, and and I, you know, I. I'm, I'm concerned about the environment. I mean, you know, uh, when I go up uh, Airport Road sometimes or through Highway 9 there, that's, you know, that's right through the Bruce Trail as well. We've got a lot of that through other parts of the province as well. You know, the thing is, though, Badger, we're smarter and I think more sensitive to environmental issues than we were 25 years ago. And, and I don't know that the province has, has, has acknowledged that.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing that people believed in 20 years ago are entirely different now on various subjects. And and protecting the environment is one of them. And to think that they're going to plow through this area is, uh, I I quite frankly think it's unforgivable, but it's, you know. And also, don't forget the big series that the Torstar newspapers did connecting the dots between the developers that would benefit from this highway and them giving money and raising money for the uh, conservatives. I mean, there was a direct correlation. There was no guesswork. And so the critics are going to have a field day with this and say, this is payback to your developer buddies. You know, rightly or wrongly, but that's certainly a position that the opposition is going to take on this.
0: Well, uh, absolutely it is, and, and, and because I know we had both authors, by the way, of that series that The Star did, uh, and you're right, it was, it's not speculative. They said, here's the proof. You know, we've seen the documentation. This is what they gave to the party. This is the, the land that they own, and guess what they're going to be and, and, of course, if the highway is built there, uh, you know as well as I do that the real money, once a road like that is constructed, is in the development alongside it, industrial parks, even residential areas. I mean, the developer does pretty well through that uh but the other communities are the ones that are adversely affected by this and uh, and you're right ev- every one of those councils have said please don't do this yet they're going to ram this thing through anyway and i find that rather interesting and and for the hall and marsh i mean anybody who's driven up highway 9 with 400 up by highway 9 you get to the hall and marsh there just past highway 9 it's one of the most beautiful p- tracts of land anywhere uh, that i've seen anywhere and like i say it's called nature's garden it's so beautiful this black beautiful loamy soil as far as you can see in each direction and now they've said okay we're not really going to go through the marsh, but they are going to cut through the Holland Creek, which is good the water source for it. Oh. Uh, with all, uh, so God knows what that's going to do to the ecosystem for that area.
2: The damage this bill this is going to do is it's quite incredible, actually. The fact that they i mean, this is going through greenbelt, it's going through wetlands, it's going through protected areas, as I've said before, and it, the damage will be, you know, incalculable, quite frankly. But they say they're going to do it anyway. Well, we'll see. They're not even telling us how much it's going to cost. They, uh, and Falls, he said he couldn't say what these projects, that and the uh, the other one up in Barry Area, I guess, um, it's going to co- what they're going to cost. Well, my goodness, if you're going to put those out in a statement and put it in your economic your fall economic statement. You better know some details, and what they couldn't do.
0: Well, any time a government says, uh, we'll get back to you the price, don't worry about it. We're just going to move forward right now. Uh, You know, be skeptical. I don't care who the government is uh, when they won't give you the details on this. And and look, if these things don't come cheaply, I know uh, the finance minister did kind of hint that neither one of these were going to be a toll highway. Uh, we'll see. I mean, the 407 wasn't supposed to be a toll highway either, but they made their minds up pretty quickly about that. Uh, so th- well, those are just a couple of the key things I think about what's going on here. And as I just mentioned with Andrea Horvath, I mean, there's only going to be about a week or ten days to debate this thing, and then they're going to break for Christmas and uh, maybe come back before the, the 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 Ritz drop, probably for a couple of weeks. But uh, you know, that's a good, good then Mr. Bethel is going to present his full budget in March. So the well, we'll. Which is going to be his election budget, really. So, I mean, we're really kind of hand-tied here, and this is basically what the government's going to do, and it's not going to be much accountability because they're not going to be sitting in the legislature.
2: And, Bill, what's notable is is, is some of the things that are missing here in this statement. You know, What about the extra five-cent cut they were going to give in gasoline? Yeah. That wasn't there. What about $10 daycare? That wasn't there. What about help for small businesses? That wasn't there. And it goes on and on. So it it seems to me that their their concentration is, and where I do give them their due, you know, uh, infrastructure is important, which is sure. all that kind of stuff and It creates jobs, and that's that's a good deal. But you don't do those things at the expense of the environment, and that's what that you know, and that's what critics will certainly thrive on that during the during the election. I'm I have no doubt about it in my mind.
0: Well, which is why there are supposed to be studies done to, to try to compare the project or the proposed project, whatever it might be, against the environmental standards that the province has already set. And, and I know for at least one of those projects, the province has said, yeah, we're not going to do that with this project. We're just going to move ahead with it. Because they, I'm afraid, you know, they, they probably don't want to hear the information about well, so that. Well, remember
2: so. the critics, some of the critics wanted the federal government to come and do the environmental assessment. Yeah. And well, I, that went nowhere.
0: Well, we'll see uh, in the days and weeks ahead just what's going to happen. Uh, it's You know, the uh, mini-budget is all talk at this stage once they start implementing it, but as uh, you say, they're a majority government, and uh, if there's nobody at, at Queen's Park for question period, there's hardly any accountability. Uh, Go, I want to switch up to the to the nation's capital right now because there's some weird things going on up there, too, uh, especially with the, some of the reaction to, uh, first of all, the, the, the Glasgow summit, of course, and the environmental uh, aspects of that are going on here and some of the expectations that the prime minister has set. And we can certainly talk about those. Uh, the other thing, though, is, uh, you know, f- people might know from the old days, a, a little game you used to play, you know, with a, all these pict- heads in a picture that said, where's Waldo? Uh, a lot of people in Ottawa these days are asking, where's Aaron? Uh, because he seems to be pretty silent, and, and I don't know where he is these days. With a number of different things right now, he uh, I, ever, ever since this anti-vax movement within his own party started, he seems to have uh, just kind of backed away from the spotlight.
2: Well, which is too bad because uh, when the boss away- is away, you know the saying. and and already that there's a group have organized themselves, and it's supposed to be growing if you believe the reports. A, gr- a group that wants to get together with uh, conservative MPs and and conservative senators are starting a group where they're going to speak on behalf of people, the anti-vaxxers, and uh, go go to bat for people that might be losing their jobs as a result of uh, refusing to, you know, say whether they vaxxed or not, or just simply refusing to take the vaccine. They're going to bat for those people. Well, uh, that seems a bit backward to me. I would think they would want to put their efforts in getting people vaccinated. But no, they're going to uh, speak on behalf of the people that might lose their jobs because of uh, not getting vaccinations. Well, I don't know if that's, that's kind of... Is that representing the majority of the people in this country? I don't think so.
0: Well, and it juxtapose that with the comments for last weekend from former Prime Minister and former Conservative leader Brian Mulroney. Uh, who was asked pointedly about that by Evan Sullivan and basically said O'Toole's got to step up and show some leadership here. You know, if as o- 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 borney said, if he were Prime Minister and somebody said, I'm not going to get vaccinated, he'd show them the door. Oh. And he did that in, in, when he was Prime Minister. There were a couple of MPs that did not jump on side with the program. It wasn't vaccination, of course. It was ta- taxation and GST then. And he booted them out, said, that's it. If you're not on the team, I don't want you in here. Uh, yet, Mr. O'Toole, obviously has, has decided not to do something like that. And as you say, in the absence of, of that d- strong direction from the leader, you've got people within the party right now that says, well, then we're going to do this instead. And you've got these people with their anti-vax thing. Uh, you've got Dean Allison, the MP from the Lincoln area down to the Niagara Way, uh, who's uh, bringing anti-vax people onto his television program these days. And people are saying, hey, w- what is the policy here, and who's running the ship?
2: Well, that's the question. And I mean... He has to step up. I don't know where he is if he's taking a you know deserved vacation or or what, but he has to come forward and lay down the law and said, and say this is just as Mulrooney did way back when you know in GST times. The thing is you have to you have to set the tone. Sure, you have to consult your members in your caucus. There's no question about that and get a and get a flavor of what's going on across the country. But the buck stops with you, and you have to set the tone and say, this is where we're going, and you better get on board or get off. But you
0: know of all the years that you covered both places, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, uh, Politics 101 says when the leader, in this case the Prime Minister, is out of the country, you're up there, you're up there in front of the media as often as you can. To talk about this, that, and the other thing, even environmental issues, vaccinations, whatever it's going to be, uh, the the Alberta referendum about equalization—that's uh, big news. I mean, you know, there, was, there should be federal implications to that. And you listen to—and nothing but crickets from the conservative caucus. Not just Mister O'Toole, but even was it thirty, I think, MPs from that area from Alberta. None of them have commented on that. It's, it's as if they just want to just kind of leave let sleeping dogs lie. But is that really what we're expecting from the well, opposition?
2: It, 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 the ship's listing. Uh and that's, that's what it is. And if somebody has to, has to write it. And if, if it isn't, isn't uh, Arnold Tool, someone else will have to do it. Because it just can't be left to flounder as it is right now with, you know, with people going off in various different directions and taking on various different causes without any kind of real focus. And that's what's happening right now from what I see.
0: Well, and it's, it's going to have ramifications. I mean, that's, that seems to be the problem. And I'm sure you saw Campbell Clark's article in the Globe and Mail today, a uh, political columnist for the Globe. Uh, the, the title of the article was, Aaron O'Toole's been treed. In other words, he's up a tree by his own party, and he can't come down to talk. Uh, which I think is an interesting metaphor, but I think I think it paints a pretty clear picture as to what's going on right now. Uh, there are opportunities here for, for the opposition to do something and to comment about some of these things, and we're not hearing it. Uh, and I'm wondering if it's because of the dissension in the ranks. I mean, uh, you know, among all these things that we just talked about, uh, there's still a number of people right now that aren't sure that Aaron O'Toole should be the leader of their party.
2: Well, if, if are <laughs> kind of building their argument by by staying out of the limelight. If you're not doing anything, if you're not, you know, if you're not running the ship, then all kinds of crazy things happen, and and including that, you know, the, the people will muster support for getting rid of you. If you're not there to defend yourself and to set set a tone, well, you're more, more or less helping their cause.
0: Is is this vaccination issue going to haunt him forever and a day here? Because uh, he's even waffled on that at first, saying you know that he was going to fight this, and then said, "Okay, we'll 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 comply with this." Uh, and only conservatives that are vaccinated are going to be allowed into the Commons during debate. And now they're saying, "But we're going to challenge this at the earliest time." What does that mean? Challenge? Uh, does that mean defy it? Uh, we're not quite sure exactly. But he's talking the talk, but I'm not sure what walk he's going to walk.
2: I think uh, Aaron Tool's problem is that. He he has a difficult time making up his mind, and that's important for a leader. You have to say, "This is my position," and I'd like everybody to get on board. But if you, if you don't do that, then it, 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 there's there's no direction, and, and that's what that's what's happening right now. It's just the, the party's just going to start consuming itself, and that's and I, I I see that thing, you know, that going on already, quite frankly.
0: I mean, at the essence, and at the root of this, of course, is... is the way they ran the last federal election. I mean, I, as somebody so widely pointed out, it seems as if the Conservatives snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, because they were heading the polls through most of the election until about the last uh, 10 to 14 days or so, and it was the vaccination issue that seemed to turn people's opinions about this, and it's still haunting them now, and and, and th- plus the fact, you know, even some of the things that O'Toole did promise during the election campaign uh really ticked off a lot of the, the extreme right-wing people in the Conservative Party, uh, a lot of them from out west, but not exclusively. Uh, and, you know, they, they don't want to be. Uh, you, know, you remember the commercial that, that ran to the last week of the election? We're not your father's conservative party. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Mulroney was pleased to see a commercial like that, and maybe this was just him lashing back. But, I, in other words, you can't get people to support you if you can't define yourself, can you?
2: Well, they can't. This is it. I mean, if, you know, I, rightly or wrongly, Harper defined the party. And you knew where he was going with it, you knew he was the boss. But right now there just seems to be nobody steering the ship. And that's, that's a concern. I mean, for you know, the caucus, it's a concern for the leader. It's a you know, concern for all the people that support the Conservative Party. They're looking at it and saying, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are, you know, I, have, have, you, have you got a thought in your head as to where you'd like to take this party? And right now, if I was a you know a, you know supporter of the conservative party, I'd be saying, "What the hell is going on here? Like, where are you in all of this? Are you taking a position on on, on vaccination, or aren't you? Are, are you supporting anti-vaxxers and not the people that did get a vaccination? Are you, you know?" And it goes on and on. It, it, it's troubling times for the conservatives.
0: Well, and especially if if the decision's been made that, look, we have to to placate the people in the West, you know, the the, the hardliners, you know who have a pretty strong voice in the party uh are they not aware of the fact that there are at least two rogue parties out in alberta right now that are trying to do exactly what preston manning did back a number of years ago in other words we don't agree with the way the party's going we're breaking off jay hill a former uh conservative mp and, and cabinet minister uh is one of them and and you know they, they didn't they're not making a whole lot of noise yet but they're there and they're they're starting to get some groundswell of support right now so is that really a, the smart strategic move for the conservative to say that's our base because that base not even, may not even be staying with the Conservative Party.
2: That you've nailed the problem right there. There are so many factions within the Conservative Party, like our conservative supporters. I mean, mind you, you know, you like you mentioned, you had the different groups out west, you know, saying, "Well, you're not right enough," and we, we've got, we know what we where. We want to take the, the, either the province or, or the country, and and then you've got somebody else singing an entirely different tune and wanting to go more to the middle ground and and it just seems to me that it's just a big mess as I said it's a hot mess right now because there are so many people singing different tunes and that that is for a party could could spell the end basically of the conservative party if they don't get their act together
0: well, we'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, we got to break it off. We're just about out of time. Uh, thanks, as always, uh, Badger, for this. Uh, have a great weekend. Don't forget to turn the clocks back on Saturday night, and uh, we'll talk again next week.
2: Okay, Bill. Thanks again.
0: Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years, uh, and uh, interesting political landscape that's happening these days. And Always great to touch base with the Badger there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
3: CHML.
0: Lots going on in Ottawa these days. And, of course, with the appointment of a new cabinet a few days ago now, Uh, There were some concerns about some of the people that were in new portfolios, uh, just what kind of a job they were going to do. One of the more contentious portfolios was, and still is, uh, the Defense Ministry, uh, and that of course is basically because of the sexual assault allegations that have gone on and the investigations that have gone on because of those allegations and, uh, well, what many would consider to be uh, the lack of any concrete uh, movement uh, by the government to try to resolve some of these issues. So... Uh, There is a new minister. She is, of course, Anita Anand, who is the new defense minister, and the speculation was, is she going to be able to do what uh, her predecessor, Harjit Sajjan, could not do? Well, uh, she's already made moves in the right direction, apparently, uh, with the the changes now that these uh, sexual assault cases will be moved to civilian courts which is something that uh, many of the experts were pleading with the previous government to do some time ago. So what are the implications? I'm uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Amanda Connolly. Amanda, of course, is an online journalist for Global News covering this story. Uh, Amanda, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Thanks for having me. This is certainly a, a, bi- a big topic to discuss.
0: Well, it is, especially from the standpoint of, okay, show us what you can do then, uh, Minister Anand, because there's a lot of of grief about Mr. Sijan. There was also, as you've been reporting, some people say, well, you know, he's former military, so he can't really crack down on these people. He either can't or doesn't want to. Uh, Whether that was true or not, you know, that's what people perceived. So the new minister comes in here, and, and when she makes a statement like this, Amanda, is it basically saying, hey, there's a new sheriff in town now?
3: Absolutely. This certainly has been, I think, perceived. It's fair to say as um, a significant move only 10 days into her uh, her her being in this new role here. And so again, this is this is a big move. It's one, as you mentioned there, that we've been hearing uh, calls for. I would almost say, please for now for, for months. People have really been pleading with the government to take some kind of action to take this action specifically, uh, just because of the the sheer number and the sheer. Uh, significance of the concerns around how the military is handling the sexual misconduct cases within their own ranks, and particularly the military police that's been investigating these. So certainly uh, we spoke to Anand yesterday, she was describing this as a bold and major move, one of the, you know, a, a list of ones that she has prepared to do here and really laying out uh, kind of the expectation that she is prepared to move more. She is prepared to move quickly here and really wants to get things going.
0: Well, especially the, the way, I guess, this this whole announcement came out, Amanda, because uh, we're, we're told it was basically through a letter that she sent to, to former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor, who's doing her investigation right now, and her recommendations are going to be forthcoming pretty soon. Uh, but it seems as if uh, Minister Anand is basically reaching out to the people that have already investigated this and saying, look, it, I'm on your side. I, I see this. I mean, there's, a, there's an implied message here, isn't there?
3: There is. And I think that that message, again, is, is as you were saying there, that she is coming in with, with a, um, a desire and a focus on getting things done. We heard from her when she was sworn in uh, to the new role that this was her first priority. Her top priority was getting change done to reform the military's cultural problems and the system in place that we've heard. Uh, we've done so much reporting on over the past uh, nine or ten months now. Uh, again, really, really saying that there, there, is no, there is no one silver bullet to solve this problem. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start and that was something that we, we've been hearing a lot of criticism of the former minister over the past months, that there was a, a broad kind of perception there that, that he simply was not acting for whatever reason it was. There simply was a lack of action coming out there, a lack of adequate action to create real and meaningful change to start addressing these problems.
0: Well, and the reaction, I guess, uh, from some circles, and I wanted to get what you, you've heard about this in the last little while. I know that uh, retired Colonel Michelle Drapeau, who's actually a lawyer now at the University of Ottawa, uh, calls this a, a, a welcome sign of leadership and a game-changer. Uh, it, it seems to me as if there was an appetite for this kind of movement a long time ago, Amanda.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Again, we, we had seen these um, the, these calls coming out really in droves during the, the Parliamentary Committee studies that were launched in the spring following global news reporting into this this crisis. Uh, and really, again, what they heard over and over again was, was, was um, calls from survivors, from experts, from advocates saying that something has to change. The military cannot be handling these cases themselves um, right now. Uh, they, there need to be serious reforms. And again, in June, we had seen a report from another former Supreme Court Justice, Morris Fish, who effectively came out and said until there are significant enough reforms the military justice system these sexual assault cases need to be removed they need to be handled by civilians until you can show that the system has changed enough to actually handle them credibly
0: I want to get your response and and your your feelings on what's going on. You've done a lot of work on this file uh, for a long time, and and you and your colleague, of course, Mercedes Stevenson, who did such a great job uh, bringing the story to us and and bringing uh, the facts as opposed to the speculation that has gone on in situations like this. As somebody who's done a lot of the work on this, uh, were you frustrated when you saw these these reports from Justice Fish and, of course, uh, the, the other ones that have been done previously, that there was so much inaction by the government?
3: Well, you know, I, I will say, as as a reporter on these issues, it's not really my place to be um, to be frustrated or kind of have an opinion on on um, the the actions that are, that are being taken. What I will say, though, is that again, I, I have spent a lot of time, as you mentioned, there talking to experts, talking to people who are deeply invested, deeply involved, have have um, standing and in, in a lot of cases heartbreaking experience uh, dealing with these issues themselves, and what they've been saying again and again is really expressing. Um, I think, first of all, confusion as to why there's been no action taken when these reports were coming out, why it seemed that they, they simply were not being acted on. Um, concern about how long it would take to actually have action here, the fact that people um, who are coming forward, who are experiencing who are experiencing this right now, should not have to wait until next summer or next spring or whenever it will actually happen that we'll see um, the final report from Madame Arbour, who was investigating this coming out. And really, again, a what, I, what we heard a lot of times was, in a sense, almost a a feeling of, I think, um, betrayal or deflation in terms of the hopes that they had had when this first came out, that the government would take it seriously and act. Um, Again, a lot of people who've been saying, you know, we we thought that that when this came out, that there would be action, that there would be things that would be changing. And for a long time, I think that the sense was that that simply wasn't happening for months. Um, Now, of course, with this action, we're seeing very strong sentiments coming out, From so many people who have spent their lives in the military, who have had these experiences of um, sexual misconduct, sexual violence, sexual assault in the military, who are saying, finally, something is happening, something is being done that shows the government is taking this seriously.
0: Well, uh, the reason I ask the question is because we've seen this happen in the past uh, when when journalists such as yourself uh, do this work and basically shine the light on on a problem uh, that heretofore not too many people might have been aware of. You expect uh, those responsible to say, "Whoa, okay, we've got to take some action. We have to address this." And and they, you know, the fact, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the government said, "Well, we're we're studying this. You know, we're keeping an eye on this as as opposed to decisive action." So I can understand an awful lot of the frustration uh, from the victims, especially as you've been reporting. And one of the common common elements of of this, and in, in their statements, as you talked to a lot of the people that were impacted by this, Amanda, was why even bother reporting it? Because it's going to get knocked down down the chain of command. I'm never going to get uh, the the respect I deserve in this, et cetera. Does moving this to the civilian court change that? And is, is it a different ball game now?
3: That's a really good question. And I think what you're what you're seeing here again, um, we know that when. Um, I think any 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 woman, any person who's ever gone through the civilian justice system knows that there are very real and very serious concerns about how sexual assault is handled among really any civilian police forces. It's an ongoing issue. It's been reported on extensively mm-hmm. over over the years, particularly since Me Too. But what I think you're seeing right now is the sense that even if there are delays, even if there are those those serious concerns that we've seen coming up when these cases are transferred to to the civilian system what there it seems there will be a much likely sorry it seems there will be much less a chance of that feeling and perception of a conflict of interest which is what you have now among people who are going through um, the military justice system that when they come forward it's not simply that there is a lack of action or a lack of resolution it's that there is a reason that that is happening there is there is someone who is um, in a sense, not taking it as seriously because they have a superior who might be accused or because they have a vested interest in these being swept under the rug for promotional aspirations or things like that. That was certainly a concern raised in 2015 by the Deschamps report that, this again, there, there was an incentive for officers and people involved in these things to sweep the allegations under the rug to keep it quiet and, and not be seen as having problems in their ranks. And so I think that really is that that conflict of interest concern is what um, people are, are feeling can be alleviated by moving these over to the civilian system, even though, again, we know the civilian system is not without its problems.
0: Well, and I'm glad you made that point because I guess it's really all a matter of relativity, isn't it? Uh, because we've been reporting on this program for so many years now about about the the weaknesses, and there are many in the in the civil system as well. Uh, because the same sorts of things that that we've talked about here in the military system, as you've been talking about, Amanda, are, are present there too. Victim shaming, uh, you know, non-believers, uh, and on and on it goes. That happens in the civilian system. It's by no way perfect, but from the stories we're hearing about what's going on in the military and the way that some of these accusations, when they finally come forward... Are being treated, you think? Okay, the civil system isn't perfect; it's got a lot of flaws. But it seems the military system's even worse. So it, it's it's not as if we're moving to a you know a, a, an ideal situation here. There are still going to be some pitfalls here. I understand that, uh, but I, I'm getting the sense there's a certain amount of relief now uh, because I know that uh, the, the past two reports, Amanda, that that dealt with this. Even uh, as you mentioned, justice arber's recommendations are not out yet; they will be shortly. But both uh, both the fish report and the Deschamps report talked about civilian court. Action in situations like this, which is a kind of a head-scratcher to say, well, why did they at least move in that direction? So it's it's interesting to see, and I think very in, important to see how Minister Anand has reacted and moved so quickly on this.
3: Exactly. And and what we heard from her as well is, is she had seen some of the of course there was reporting prior to her being named to this role that she was viewed among people in the defense industry as a mm-hmm. strong contender, someone who um, might have the skills given her background in, in corporate governance, in law to really come in and make a difference here. And and so when we spoke to Anand yesterday afternoon, she told Global News that she had seen some of that reporting. She actually came in to the job with a to-do list that she had prepared because she had seen her, her name coming up in this. And when she came in she had that to-do list ready. She met, she met with the um, acting chief, of the defense staff, with the kind of the, the top people uh, in her portfolio and, and pulled that list out and said, look, I am ready to get to work. I am ready to start tackling these things. And that, I think, um, again, it, it, it is very early. It's hard to say for sure um, kind of where this will go and, and things like that. But I think certainly we, we have seen a, um, a-, a sense both in this role and, and in her past role that this is someone who is widely respected for um, being a hard worker, for being diligent, for um, kind of coming up with, with plans to get things done and then following through on them, whether that holds, uh, whether there are barriers there that we're going to see come up. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see, but that certainly has, I think, been, it's fair to say that the perception for her coming into this role as someone who can get things done and is prepared to do the work to do that.
0: Let me ask you, I think it's a very good point, where is this going ultimately? I mean, this is a bold move, and I think the right move to make. Uh, But as you say, it's not the silver bullet. It's not gonna say, okay, we've solved that one, next next crisis, Uh, there's a lot of work to be done here. Uh, now, as as we've been reporting, of course, when new ministers are appointed through a cabinet shuffle, such as the prime minister just went through, they all get their marching orders, individual portfolios, and those, to our knowledge, haven't been issued yet, So, I, but there's obviously been some discussion, I would think, between the prime minister and Mr. minister and on. How far do they go here, Amanda? I'm asking you to crystal ball just a little bit here, because there are some people that are saying, look, at solving this and dealing with the sexual assault problems is only one part of this. There are systemic problems within the Canadian military that need to be addressed. Uh, some are suggesting you have to blow up the whole chain of command. I don't know if they want to go that far, but do you get the feeling that this is it's within Minister Anand's mandate to go that far and simply say, okay, we're going to talk about restructuring, we're going to talk about personnel? everything's on the table right now it's it's that it's a bold move and a huge responsibility which is one of the reasons people are saying well can she do this uh i'm getting the sense personally i wanted to get your read on this that the move to move these to the civilian courts is probably the first of a lot of moves she's going to make in that direction
3: yes I think we can definitely say everything right now is on the table we have heard that um expressed from the government from trudeau himself um over recent months that they're looking really at at all of the possible options here that was really why um, former Supreme Court Justice uh, Louise Arbour was, was tasked with this, this particular review was um, they, she was asked to come up with, with concrete specific actions that the government should be taking to start addressing this, this, this problem and so certainly uh, when we spoke to on yesterday she said that this is a first step it is not the only step it will not be the only one that solves the problem here that this will be part of really an ongoing steady effort over the coming months and, and likely over, you know, it, it, over over the coming years, I would I would think too, this is not a problem that will go away uh, quickly, but but one that the government is, is certainly signaling they are um, committed to trying and, and, and rolling out kind of as many efforts as our Arbour will recommend, as, as will be deemed needed to actually make a meaningful change here. And so that report from uh, Madame Arbour is not due until the spring, but certainly when it comes out, we are expecting it to be comprehensive to have, um, a very broad systemic view on um, what needs to happen from the big picture in the military to change the culture and really zero in on all of the factors that are contributing to to enabling and, and allowing this problem to to continue and fester. And so, um, an independent sexual misconduct reporting system remains one of those funds that we are expecting to see. Anand uh, remains committed to that. When she spoke to Global News yesterday, it was a campaign promise for the Liberals. And so, certainly, there. This is this is one of many actions that it seems will be taken and and certainly the the beginning rather than the end of what they're looking at.
0: Uh, Very quickly, I know we're tight on time here. Uh, Is one of these other moves to talk about some of the personnel involved here, Uh, the the Jonathan Vances, I mean, Art McDonald, who wants his job back uh, because there were no charges late, he feels that was a vindication. The the previous uh, justice or defense minister simply said, well, we haven't made that decision yet. Uh, That's going to be on her plate too. Does that send a message if she makes a decision to say thanks but no thanks to Art McDonald?
3: It is on her plate, yes, and it, it, you know, I've spoken to folks who say this is a, one of the big issues on her plate right now. We don't have a decision on Admiral Art McDonald yet, but as you mentioned there, he certainly had, had been waging a very public battle to try and get his job back. I think that when we saw the military come out and say that he was not exonerated, that, he, that the allegation had not been deemed unfounded against him, there was simply a lack of evidence to lay a charge, that, um, I, I, I again, I, I think that you are hearing a lot of skepticism from people about, experts about whether it is possible for him to come back following that. That is a significant move for the military to make to come out and issue that that kind of a clarification to his claims. And so, again, certainly one to watch, but we are are certainly watching for uh, why there's been no decision so far.
0: Well, it's a a very active file now all of a sudden, and I guess that's good news for an awful lot of people that have been studying this. And uh, we look forward to your reporting on this in the future uh, with some of the new uh, developments on this. Amanda, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Take care. Amanda Conley, of course, journalist for Global News, uh, and especially on the website. Go to globalnews.ca to get all the latest uh, from the reporting Amanda's doing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is going to be an appointment probably a week from today. Hamilton City Council has a vacancy now uh, because uh, longtime Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins, uh, well, left because he won the federal election. He's now the Member of Parliament for Hamilton East Stoney Creek, basically the same neighborhood that he represented on City Council. For quite some time. Uh, So they have to fill the vacancy. Now, here are the logistics of this. Uh, There is a a municipal election uh, next year, early next year. uh, And uh, do you hold a by election? Uh, How do you do this? Or do you appoint somebody? Uh, So, council has decided, in their wisdom or lack thereof, we'll let you make that call, uh, that they're going to appoint somebody. And uh, there's a long list of people here that have thrown their hats into the ring, I suppose. Uh, and uh, a variety of different ways, I guess this could go. I want to bring John Best into the conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, and uh, he's been following this story uh, well since uh, uh, then. Councilor Collins threw his hat into the ring. John, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate the time.
4: My pleasure, Bill.
0: Uh, I got, by my count here, about 21 people that have uh, have officially registered for this right now, uh, and council's going to have to make a decision. I, I guess the only prediction I can make, Brad, and John, it's going to be a long meeting next week.
4: Yeah, they each get five minutes to present, and uh, if they all opt to do that, and I don't know why, frankly, you'd put your hat in the ring if uh, if you're not prepared to uh, explain to council why you should be the member. So if they all take that opportunity, you're by the time you move people in and off the mic and get their equipment set up or whatever they're doing, uh, it's going to be at least two hours of presentations, uh, 21 people, as you mentioned. So uh yeah, it'll but you know, it's an important decision, um, and uh it's certainly worthy of uh spending uh, you know, a morning uh for a deliberation. The uh, the real fun would be if you could be in the room afterwards and because and <laughs> when, when council retires to discuss this uh situation. But um uh, yeah, it's uh you know, twenty one people have put their name forward and you know I'm always on the side of anybody that, that puts their name forward for public office, it's, uh, it can be a very thankless job and some people may be a little naive, but it doesn't matter. I think, uh, uh you know, it's a, it's a sign of engagement and, and it's, uh, you know, it's a worthwhile thing to, uh, offer yourself for public office.
0: You talk about being a long meeting. If there's questions and answers from the councillors after this, this thing could go on over the weekend next week, too, sure. uh, depending on some of the councillors and you know their propensity sometimes for being long-winded. Uh, interesting list here. Uh, one, two, three former councillors, one of them a former mayor and a yep. former councillor under Stony Creek and Hamilton Council, I guess, for that matter, too. Uh, any surprises on, from your standpoint? Um, not
4: really. Uh, I, I suppose uh, seeing Don Ross... Uh, Former longtime councillor, back from you know sort of the '80s and '90s, uh, he was uh, very active uh, around the time of amalgamation.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, it, uh, interesting to see Don uh, putting his name forward. Uh, I see uh, Russ Powers again. Um, I, uh, you know, a pretty solid member of council when he represented Dundas. So, uh, a couple of good candidates. Um, I guess uh, if we if we went by um, the discussion when council voted to make this appointment, um, the, the mayor was quite clear uh, what he would prefer. He wanted somebody who had been a councillor, and preferably somebody who had served that part of the city. That would narrow it down to Larry DiNanni pretty much <laughs> as the as the logical candidate. But you know, Larry's been doing some government relations work for clients. I don't know how extensive that is, and. Whether some members of council might see that as uh, as problematic, I don't know.
0: Uh, and to, as you, you've mentioned in your reporting on this, I mean, yeah, the mayor has expressed his opinion on that. He only gets one vote, though. Uh, and a lot of other former people that were, former candidates, I guess, for for this at that particular seat. As a matter of fact. Uh, some of these names I'm familiar with, not because I know them, but simply because uh, they, they ran against Councillor Collins uh, unsuccessfully, I guess, on different occasions. Uh, and so they're obviously still passionate about this and want to get involved in this. Uh, Jim Hallett, who I've known for the Conservation Authority for quite some time, and, and the Bay Area Restoration Council has done a lot of great environmental work in the area uh, and lives in that neck of the woods too. So it's not as if there's uh, names that are unfamiliar to an awful lot of these councillors. Uh, but uh, let me back up just a bit, though, because we've been talking about this as, as this is the process. They had options here. I mean, they could have said, "Okay, we're going to do a by election," and that's happened in the past. Uh, but the timing here. I, by the way, I agree with council's decision. I think an appointee with only about a year to go, even you know, less, I guess, than a year until the next election, uh, makes all kinds of sense in situations like this. And when i was on council i think we had a couple of situations where this happened but it was early in the term so by elections made a lot more sense uh one of those was a, a seat that was uh vacated when andrew horvath left city council and went on to provincial right. politics bob Bertina filled that uh and then when russ powers won a federal seat uh, there's a by-election in dundas and art sampson uh won that by-election but they have in the past as you've j- talked about john they've done the appointment route here in the past and uh I get the sense it worked out pretty well, the, bo- the two occasions I can recall.
4: Absolutely. Um, uh, Terry Anderson uh, filled in on the mountain uh, for uh, when Donna Skelly got elected. Uh, former councillor uh, represented the area. And, you know, I think there's a lot of fuss uh, leading up to these appointments. But, frankly, uh, if you look at that appointment, if you look at uh, Bob Morrow, the former mayor, filling in uh, in Ward 3 when Bernie Morelli died... Um, there's not much fuss afterwards. They just get on with it, and, you know, it is only a year. I, I think when when uh, staff were uh, presenting to council uh, on this issue, they I think they indicated that by the time you issued a writ and went through the, the proper process for an election, it would have been something like February, March, before uh, a new councillor could actually be seated. And uh, that would leave, um, you know, six months roughly of... Uh, uh no representation for that ward so i think i think an appointment uh when there's a you know a year left is is certainly the way to go
0: what are the other parameters they usually ask for, and I guess they can't really demand it. Uh, we can get some clarity from you on that. Uh, is whoever they appoint here uh, usually de- uh, declares that they're not going to run in the next municipal election. This is really, a, a, I don't want to say a seat holder because there is still work to be done, uh, but it's it's an interim basis. And uh, and uh, that seems to have happened in the past. Obviously, Bob Morrow, when he filled in for Bernie Morelli, uh, did not run for re-election. Terry Counselor Actually, I worked with Terry Anderson for a time on council when I was on city council at back then too, and that you know, and it was the same area, the same ward too, so it made all kinds of sense. Uh, but the concern here is, as you say, the timing. If they went through the by-election, and I know there are a lot of voices in the city that said that's what they should have done, uh, they're only there for about, well, first of all, there's nobody for there for six months, and then there's somebody on council uh, for only about five or six months, and then they automatically, because of their com- incumbency, would probably have a leg up on anybody that ran against them. Uh, sure. So whatever's going to happen here and whoever they're going to appoint next week, uh, this still looks like it's going to be an open field when the next m- municipal election rolls around.
4: Yeah, and that's probably the way it should be especially after uh, uh an incumbent uh, like Chad he's been in for over 20 years. Um it it's probably the best thing to do is is to kind of clear the slate and and throw it open to uh, you know an entirely new um group of uh, possible candidates. Um you know, it's uh it, it it's one of these situations where, you know, the it it this um, little debate will provide an opportunity for uh, the, the culture wars to <laughs> rear their head, I'm sure. But uh, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't think the deliberation and the discussion of candidates, I, I think that happens in closed session, does it not? So uh, the public is not really, they're, they're going to hear the, the candidates uh, making their pitch, but, um, you know, the kind of, uh, I don't know if there's going to be horse trading or whether there's just a uh they just do a round of balloting until they come up with a consensus i'm not sure how the how the actual vote will take place but uh you know the, it it's uh, one of these uh it doesn't take much in hamilton um, for the cultural divide <laughs> to rear its head uh, on any number of issues so uh th- that's certainly interesting but it's all going to be over a week from today
0: uh, technically, we'll see what happens there, and, and I I would suspect, as as you just mentioned, uh, the final deliberation after everybody said their say here will probably be done in in a in a closed door session. Uh, although I think you know, I kind of understand why they couldn't do it in open sessions just have a debate and and a vote to see who stands where on this. Uh, I think this is one of these things. Uh, even those that wanted to have a by election instead, one of the, the the phrases and the key phrases uh, that keep coming up time and again, John here, and especially now in this community. Uh, is transparency let's be more transparent let's not you know and, and there are things as I've talked about, as somebody who sat in those chairs for a few years, uh, there are times that, that you have to close the doors. They have to be in camera sessions because you're, you know, negotiating contracts, things of that nature, and you can't do that in public. And so I understand that. But uh, there's always been that criticism of, of, not just this council, but I guess a lot of councils, that you know maybe too much goes on behind closed doors, and we want to know who's saying what, and and you know what determinations are made in those situations. So I think it would behoove them. Uh, to do as much of this process as possible in open session so people that want to pay attention can pay attention.
4: Well, yes, except I, I would have sympathy for some of these lesser known names uh, uh, having their qualifications discussed in an open meeting and perhaps dismissed. Uh, you know, it, it, that would be, um, you know, we're talking about uh, protection of privacy as well. and. Um, you know, for instance, um, uh, I went to the website and and all the candidates are listed and and they're highlighted. So you click on the highlight, and all you get is is the actual formal application uh, of the individual, which does not contain their their resume uh, or their CV. So, there, you know, I guess the thought is that since the public is not going to be voting on this, that that's private information, but. Council will have the benefit of uh, whoever, you know, presumably most of them, if not all of them, will, will submit CVs. And so council will have that in front of them, uh, or will have at least absorbed that information when they, when they discuss this and when they vote. My guess right now, though, is um, the council with, with uh, you know, less than a year to go, or just about a year to go, um, I, I think experience is probably going to be a big factor in uh, in council's decision.
0: Well, let me ask you anyway. Yeah, let me ask you about that because that uh, you know that was one of the reasons for the, the going to the appointment route as opposed to the by-election. Uh, is that you know, this is not just you know, holding the seat until uh, you know the next municipal election next year. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the plate right now, which I think is why the mayor is saying, look at somebody who's got some council experience uh, to catch up on some of these issues. Everybody has an opinion on on things like you know the, the, the sewage gate and, and some of the other key issues and the Red Hill Report, which is not going to be forthcoming, but it, there may be an update into these sorts of things. So there's still an awful lot to be done here and some important decisions to be made by this council.
4: Yeah, and I saw uh, some social media chatter. There, there, there was uh, some concern about um, how, uh, the appointment uh, along the lines of um, whether they're in favor of boundary expansion. Uh, is, are you know, and that could work against, frankly, uh, uh, the uh, the three that that were former uh, members of council, um, because there may be a concern that you know some old line former council members would would tend to be more in the camp of um, expanding the boundary. And that's one of the sort of social issues that, uh, that could rear its head around, around this appointment. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting if in their, um, uh, in their five-minute presentations, if, if some of them make it clear that they're opposed to uh, urban boundary expansion, whether that might uh, work in their favor um it'd be you know depending we don't know what the mood of council is on this issue yet uh, it, i think it's closer uh, than than one might have thought um i heard lloyd ferguson quoted as having some concerns about it uh so you know th- that's one uh, issue that where where the position of a potential candidate could be a factor
0: well, and if you want to go by past experience, as some of the councillors have indicated, they're they uh, they leaning toward, uh, you get Larry DeAnne, uh Russ Powers, for instance, and, and even to a certain extent Don Ross, all three of them were on various councils. Uh, Larry Dianney was on the Stony Creek Council. Uh, pre-amalgamation, and they were all heavily involved in the amalgamation debate about whether or not Hamilton should get amalgamated. That was back in the late 1990s, so uh, right. these guys, they're battle-tested, let me put it that way, the three former councillors. Uh, they've all had to make some important decisions about you know, Hamilton's future, especially from a geographic standpoint, uh, so that wouldn't be new to them. Uh, but that's, you're right, that's one issue that is probably going to have to be touched on by this council, and let's not forget the time frame here. There's a budget that's going to have to be done, uh, starting, I would think, sooner than later, and, uh, and of course the determination made about that uh sometime in the springtime so there's there's a lot of work to be done here
4: yeah and i i think uh, you're mentioning the budget and uh, you know that process has already begun they've already had a first look at the numbers and we know how that dance works we always start out with a with an ugly number and then it magically gets whittled down to something less ugly but uh again um you know it's there's going to be a lot of pressure for an experienced hand to take this job because uh, the the first almost the first thing the the new member will be doing is plunging into budgets and that's something uh in this instance where uh you really don't want a lot of on the job uh, training uh, because uh, you know the issues are just too uh too complex so We'll see. Um, it, it looks to me like um, if, if, you know, when the mayor made his, he was very clear uh, when he talked about not only being um, somebody with council experience, but uh, geographic experience, which would, again, look at possibly DeAnne, um, You know, I didn't hear a lot of disagreement when he, when he made that declaration. Uh, I didn't hear anybody around the table take him on on that issue. So... We'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, and in the past, as you say, with the appointment, uh, you know, the Terry Anderson appointment, that, that was his old board. That's the board he represented for, I think, was nine years on council. Yeah, uh, so that that was a pretty easy decision. Uh, Bob Morrow was was, I think well-known and well-liked right across the city. I mean, I know way back when when you saw city council, it was the west end of the city, but uh, well-known in the downtown area, too, so that was an easy fit, too. So I I don't know where their heads are at, because uh, Russ Powers, of course, when he was on council for many years, was from Dundas. Uh, Don Ross was the West Mountain. Uh, So I don't know if that's going to work for them or against them in situations like that.
4: Well, I I talked to at least one councillor just to see if there was any behind-the-scenes maneuvering, and uh, that councillor indicated that... uh, other than uh, getting a couple of emails from potential candidates, that that uh, you know he was unaware of any um, you know any coalitions being formed or any backroom stuff, but uh, that may just be that uh, that individual was not included in those conversations. Uh, not quite sure how this works. Um, I I did have an opportunity to talk to uh, Chad Collins, and and he did speak highly of Jim Howlett. But uh, Chad's not there anymore. so uh, whether that carries will carry anyone with him or not, I don't know.
0: Well, for people that know the geography of the Hamilton area, Jim Hallen, of course, works. He lives uh, down by the, uh, uh, way down by the, the the, well, the, the bridge down there, by the Skyway Bridge, in that part of yep. uh, Ward Five, uh, and very, very involved in in areas, of course, of uh, you know environmental issues, and and very well read on issues like that too, uh, and and not although he's never held elected office, he's uh, he's not a political novice. He's been uh, in there up to his knees, often a lot of the time, in key issues. So I can understand, that. and and I know he and Chad head uh, of relationship because of the time that Chad represented him on council, too. So uh, I, I think it's one thing we've learned over the years is trying to predict what council is going to do in the re- direction they're going to take here is, is a fool's game. So I don't know where we're going to be a week from now, but it's, it's going to be an interesting discussion, I would think.
4: Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, the, the most interesting part, unfortunately, we probably won't see. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting right up until the appointment is made, and then I think everybody will go back to sleep.
0: <laughs> uh, well, welcome to municipal politics, John Best uh, from the Bay Observer. John, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again, I'm sure, as this draws nearer.
4: Okay, thanks, Bill.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 CHML.